You're listening to the teaching of Calvary Paris. For more information, go to www.calvaryparis.com. We had a great time, and I tell you, you walked in here, and I, I don't know, I think it, maybe it adds to the Bible study. You know, when you walk in the church doors in the morning, and, the fir- and like you open the door, and you just get a face full of steak smell. I mean, for, for fellas, I mean, there's not at least, you know, probably for a lot of people, there's not much of a better smell than that. And like your senses just come alive, you know. So by the time we got to, you know, the Bible study, we were all hyped up on steak smell. And, you know, it was just, it was really, really good. It was, uh, we, had, we ate well, we were fed well physically, and then uh, we had a great time together. We talked about inductive Bible study, <clears throat> inductive Bible study methods, uh, which was a great time. Uh, Pastor Phil talked about that. We had kind of like a little exercise. We walked through some of the things of that. Uh, I'm sure it was new for some of the guys. For some of the guys have probably been doing it already, but um, had a great time walking together through Psalm 1 and uh, looking at some of the different elements of it and then discussing it together. And so uh, we had a great time doing that. Uh, left there just kind of feeling all excited uh, about uh, the way that that had gone, the guys who were there and the time that we had. Uh, and I went home and uh, made myself a cup of tea and went outside to sit down and do my reading because I had come in earlier that day. So I sat down to do my reading and I cracked open the book I was reading and there waiting for me was Psalm 1 again. Uh, and so I spent some more time in Psalm 1 that morning and by the time I was done I just uh, really, really had enjoyed that time and, and just felt like that's kind of where I wanted to land. So we're going to start off by reading Psalm 1. And we're going to talk about it some tonight, and then also talk about the, uh, the idea and the practice of biblical meditation. We're going to kind of take that out of Psalm 1 and look at that, because uh, as you see, it'll be mentioned in there. So I want to start by reading Psalm 1. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Psalm 1, if you are physically able. Uh, let's all stand together, and we'll read the word. Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor sits in the path of sinners, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper." The ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore, the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. And pray again. Lord, thank you again for this time to come together into your word tonight. Uh, It is only by your grace that we are here. It is only by your spirit, God, that I can speak Uh, from your word, um, that we can be taught, that we can learn, and that these truths can go into our hearts. Um, Lord, we just invite your spirit here to teach us tonight, Lord. Uh, We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So Psalm 1 uh, is a is not a long psalm, you know, you can go, you can look at it, and we talked about it again at the men's breakfast last Saturday, we looked at the different elements, and basically when it comes down to it, you're, you're looking to uh, study and break out Psalm 1, there's really two, two paths, two ways that you're looking at, there's, a, there's the way of the righteous, and there's the way 
of the wicked or the ungodly. I think that uh, actually Pastor Chuck Smith summed it up well. He, he said of the first psalm, he said, The first psalm deals with the godly man and the ungodly man. And there's a contrast. And the contrast is probably best expressed by the first and last words of the psalm concerning the godly blessed concerning the ungodly perish. I think that sums up the psalm pretty well. But as, we, as I read Psalm 1, and every time I read it, uh, I'm always I'm continually challenged when I get to verse 2 uh, in the psalm. His delights in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. Now understanding first that the phrase, the law of the Lord, is used often as a reference to all of Scripture in the Old Testament. It's not just talking about the first five books of the law in Scripture, but it's a reference that talks about all of Scripture. Understanding that, I often ask myself, do I find my delight in God's Word more than in other things? And sometimes I certainly do, and I'm thankful for that, but sometimes, honestly, it's hard when I'm wrestling about difficult truths uh, about myself or about God, it's hard to find delight in God's Word or to feel like I find delight in God's Word. And so I think, well, at least according to the psalmist, you know, it, to be blessed, I only have to think of Scripture two times a day, right? Day and night, right? That shouldn't be so hard. Um, maybe not. But then what does it mean also to meditate on His Word? Is it, is it just reading? Is it the same thing as doing inductive Bible study that we did? Uh, or is it something different than that? And Joshua 1.8, the Lord is speaking to Joshua as the new leader of the nation of Israel. Just after the death of Moses and this Joshua is stepping into some big, big shoes uh, following Moses as the leader. And the Lord himself says this to Joshua. This book of the law, again, the book of the law, which was the scriptures at that time, shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate in it day and night that you may observe to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success. So we not only see God commanding Joshua to meditate on his word, but the purpose that's given for that meditation to Joshua, the purpose is so that you may observe to do according to all that is written in it. So biblical meditation then would seem to be a sort of a bridge between hearing or knowing God's word and then rightly responding to or doing God's word. And I think that's an incredibly important connection to make. A few months ago in the youth, we were studying the book of James, who puts great emphasis on how our daily actions and our daily decisions are actually working out our faith in God and in His Word. And James writes this in chapter 1, starting in verse 22. But be doers of the Word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the Word and not a doer, he's like a man observing his natural face in a mirror, for he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it and is not a forgetful hearer but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in what he does. So again, a doer of the word will be blessed. That's the same word that we saw, the same term as in Psalm 1. And I think according to James, obviously, too, the one who doesn't is apparently on the other 
the other path. There are only the two paths in Psalm 1. There's the path of the righteous and there's the path of the wicked. One is going to be blessed. One is going to perish. A doer of the word, according to James, is blessed. Those who are not, according to James, are deceiving themselves and certainly in danger of perishing. So tonight, what I want to try to do is to go deeper into this idea of meditating on God's word and try to get us all on the same page to see if this is something that we're already doing or if it's something that we need to add to our spiritual growth process since we've seen that God does command his people to do it. So here's our, uh, here's our thesis for tonight. I like, uh, it's probably going to be kind of teachy, uh, but that's, that's how it came out. So here's our, here's our idea for tonight, our main idea. Biblical meditation is encouraged, and I'd say even often commanded. It's encouraged and modeled throughout Scripture as a vital component of spiritual growth and a necessary link between knowing God's Word and applying it through our prayers or our actions. Okay? So let's start off talking a little bit about biblical meditation and what it is and what it isn't, okay? And a meditation, I know, can be an uncomfortable term for many Christians. Uh, it conjures up, you know, images of Eastern mystics and incense and strange mantras, you know, being repeated over and over. My favorite was Steve Martin's, I, I want a hamburger, I want a hamburger, I want a hamburger, so, um, that's the only one I've ever tried, and, it, and it, didn't, it didn't work for me either. So, It is true that in Eastern meditation, the goal is to empty the mind. Okay? The desired result is actually to become no longer aware of any words or ideas or images or concepts, but instead to become aware of only awareness itself. And yes, I looked that up. So, Okay? It's supposed that by those who practice this type of meditation that beyond all those things they're trying to leave behind, they will find a sense of being one with all that is, uh, thinking that to be the divine universe or something similar to that. But actually, as one Christian theologian observed, this is actually the opposite goal of biblical med- meditation because it's not the experience of knowing God, but it's the experience of being God is actually what they're seeking in this. Now, Christian meditation, however, or biblical meditation, and you'll hear me interchange the two, is quite, is quite rational. It's even argumentative at times. Why are you cast down, O oh my soul? And why are you disquieted within me? David says in Psalm 42, in a meditation where he's literally contending with his own heart. Eastern or mantra meditation seeks to suppress the analytical or the thinking side of the mind, but biblical meditation stimulates our analysis and reflection. It invites us to look inside, but then it centers that reflection on the glory and on the grace of God. When Psalm 1 calls us to meditate... It uses a word that literally means to mutter, okay? It's actually referring to the fact that particularly in ancient times, the scripture was recited aloud from memory. We've talked about that before, about how uh, so many times in the oral tradition of the Jewish people, things were passed down from generation to generation orally, and many of the religious leaders and even many of the common people learned to memorize, memorize massive sections of the Old Testament, Uh, And it was recited aloud from memory, which is a great way to meditate on a passage and to draw out the richness of its meaning. Other words translated as meditate in the Psalms mean to ponder and to question thoroughly. 
So to meditate then is to ask yourself questions about the truth. And I've got some questions. We're going to come back to these later tonight. But these are some of the questions. Am I living in light of this and taking it seriously? What difference does this truth make? If I believed in this, how would it change things? And when I forget this, how does that affect me and all my relationships? Okay? Now, meditation on a text of the Bible assumes that you already know something about what the text means through study. As I mentioned earlier, at the men's breakfast, we discussed inductive Bible study, which we agreed is the, the best method for serious study of the Scriptures. And so inductive Bible study, we're going to talk a little bit about this tonight. This will be a refresher for some of you and maybe new for some. But inductive Bible study looks at a text with three basic goals in mind. First goal is observation, which asks the question, what does the text say? Okay, what did the original author intend to convey to his readers in the passage. That's what we look at for observation. What did the author intend to say to the people that he wrote it to? Once that's answered, we move to step two. Step two is interpretation. What does the text mean? Okay? What role does this text play in the whole Bible? Or how does it contribute to the gospel message? And how does it move along the main story and the main thread of the Bible, which climaxes in Jesus Christ? So what does it mean? All right? These two questions, when you ask them, are the foundation of hermeneutics, which is a seminary word for the field and study of uh, the field of study and interpretation of the scripture. Right? Hermeneutics. So next time, if you're out somewhere and you're doing your morning devos, you know, at a restaurant, somebody asks, come by and says, "Hey, what are you doing there?" Just look up and say, oh, "Just a little hermeneutics," and go right back to it. See, watch the look on their face when you do that. So, hermeneutics. All right. The answers to these questions, though, can help you interpret the meaning of a text. So then you can go on to meditate on the implications of its truth before pursuing the third goal of inductive study, which is application, okay? which asks, how does this apply in my life? All right? You might ask yourself, what does this passage tell me about God or about man, about myself? What does it demand from me? How does it change the way... I relate to people or prompt me to pray, okay? But unless you first do that hard work of answering the first two questions, your meditation and likely your application won't be grounded in what God is actually saying in the passage, okay? And it's certainly true that meditation personalizes God's word in our lives, but before we can meditate on what the text personally means to us in our time, we first need to know as much as possible about what the author meant to say to his readers when he wrote it. Okay? So let's look again together at Psalm 1. The Psalms themselves constituted Israel's ancient God-breathed hymn book. Okay? They define the proper spirit, the proper content of worship. In our day, it's often called the prayer book of the Bible. But it's noteworthy that this first psalm is not a prayer per se, but it's actually, it is a meditation. In fact, it's a meditation on meditation, all right? And it's placed at the beginning of the book, I don't think, is an accident. Um, Professor Eugene Peterson, much wiser man than I, points out that the Psalms are an edited book, that the, that the, the Psalms were placed in that order. It's an edited book, and Psalm 1 is the entrance to the rest of the book. 
Uh, He says about Psalm 1, he says, The text that teaches us to pray, the book of Psalms, doesn't begin with prayer. We're not ready. We're wrapped up in ourselves. We're knocked around by the world. Psalm 1, he says, is pre-prayer. It's getting us ready to pray, ready for the rest of the book. And this is more important than we may realize, actually. Many of us have a devotional life in which we jump into a fairly academic, from fairly academic study of the Bible, right into prayer. And I think that biblical meditation is the middle ground, um, however, between prayer and Bible study. It's the bridge between the two. And I think that while deep experiences of the presence of God can happen in all sorts of ways, uh, the ordinary, the most common way given to God's people, given to all believers for going deeper spiritually through, into prayer is through meditating on God's word. Now, according to Psalm 1, meditation promises at least three things. Okay? The first is stability. All right? We see that in verse 3, through meditating on God's word, a person becomes like a tree planted by streams of water. It's deeply rooted so that the wind that's mentioned later cannot blow it away. And the streams of water in the psalm represent the law of the Lord, the word of God. And to put roots into the water is a picture, it's a metaphor for meditation. We all know, uh, or those of us who know anything about trees, I guess which actually doesn't include me, but trees by streams do well even if there's very little rain. Okay, so what we're looking at, this is an image of someone who can keep going even in hard, dry times because they're well-rooted. Meditation then is what gives you stability and peace and courage in times of great difficulty. It helps you stay rooted in the divine water when all other sources of, of moisture, of joy and hope and strength dry up. Now, by contrast... In verse 4, the wicked who do not honor God's word are like chaff. They're the husk around, which is the husk around the seed or the kernel in the grain. Chaff is very lightweight, and any little puff of breeze just blows it away. Anything moves it. And the way to avoid being chaff rather than a tree is through meditation on God's word to provide stability for our souls. Notice also with me in verse 3, that the tree bears fruit only in season. That's one of the observations that one of the men made on Saturday, and we were talking about that. The tree bears fruit in its season, the psalm says. And like a tree, our lives are really not, we're not going to bear fruit perpetually. No fruit tree is always bearing fruit. They have seasons, and we have seasons. Our lives bear fruit in due season as appointed by the Lord. It's our responsibility to do what we can to tend the tree, right? The fruit is seasonal, but the psalm says the tree never loses its leaves, okay? It's an evergreen tree. The leaf never withers. A well-rooted tree is not dead even in seasons when it's not producing fruit. It's still living because of the root. So meditation leads to stability, that's true, but it does not lead to complete immunity from suffering and dryness. We can't always expect the same experiences of joy and love to be constant in our lives. There are seasons for great delight 
and wisdom and maturity, but there's also spiritual winter times when we don't feel like God is close, though our roots may be still firmly planted in his truth. Meditation produces stability. It also brings the promise of substance, of character growth. Chaff can't produce anything while the tree can produce fruit. The reason for that is that the tree is a growing thing and the chaff is not. Okay? Meditation bears fruit, which in the Bible means character traits such as love, joy, peace, patience or long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And you guys got that song in your mind right now? remember learning that with my kids. It always goes like that. These are the things that Paul referred to in Galatians 5, 22 and 23 as fruits of the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit. So real meditation then doesn't just make us feel close to God, but it changes our life. And many lack this change because they only read the Bible. They only read and they don't meditate. They don't stop to consider to take the truth in. I found a great A great quote. This may be my favorite quote from Charles Spurgeon ever uh, that I found this week. He says this. It's not only reading that does us good, but the soul inwardly feeding on it and digesting it. A preacher once told me that he had read the Bible through 20 times on his knees and had never found the doctrine of election there. Very likely not. It's a most uncomfortable position in which to read. If he had sat in an easy chair, he would have been better able to understand it. People who meditate become people of substance, who have thought things out and they have deep convictions. And they have good reasoning behind their beliefs and actions and they can resist pressure. But those who don't go along with the crowd, chaff-like. They're blown along wherever the wind is going, okay? So stability and substance. And finally, meditation brings blessedness. Now, blessedness It's at the beginning of the psalm. This is a very fulsome idea in the Bible. It means peace. It means well-being in every dimension of life. It means character growth. It means stability. And it means the delight found in verse 2. Meditating on the law of the Lord, the scripture moves us through duty towards the joy. If a person delights in something, you don't have to beg them to do it or like it. They do it all by themselves, right? Um. You can measure your delight for the word of God by how much you hunger for it. Spurgeon also said this. He said, man must have some delight, some supreme pleasure. His heart was never meant to be a vacuum. If not filled with the best things, it will be filled with the unworthy and the disappointing. And I think that's, that's true. That's one of the things, again, um, I, I've talked a lot to the to the youth about that in one way or the other, just this idea. And it's not something that they just contend with. The leaders back there, all of us contend with that. Our hearts were not meant to be a vacuum, and they will be filled with something. They will not sit empty. And, it, and I think Spurgeon hits it correctly and just says, if we're not filled with the best things, if we're not filling that space with the best things, with the Word of God then it's going to be filled with something else that's going to be unworthy and is going to be utterly disappointing. And this is dangerous because an empty mind, an empty heart, may present an open invitation to deception or even in some cases possibly even demonic influence. Um, But again, 
in biblical meditation, the goal is not to empty the mind of rational thought, but to fill your mind with the Word of God. Meditation on the Bible is more than just intense thinking. The Bible contains information, but it's more than that. It talks about itself as a living and acting, active agent. Hebrews 4.12, Word of God is living and powerful or active and sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and it's a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. It reminds me, it takes me back to the, the verse from James, you know, where James compares reading God's word to looking in a mirror. I think that's amazing. You, it, God's word shows us what we really look like. Uh, when, we remember, when we do his word, when we obey, as James said, we remember that. If not, we walk away from the mirror, we forget what we look like, and we move on out into life. The Apostle Paul in his letters said that the gospel... The main message of the Bible is not just words, but it's power. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it's the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. And when Paul talks about the word of God dwelling richly within us in Colossians 3.16, he's clearly indicating something beyond just an intellectual ascent, just knowing information. Paul says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. This is a picture of a people who have been changed by taking in God's word. They've taken it in, and it's even coming out again. We're, we're teaching, we're admonishing one another in psalms and hymns. We're singing in heart. Our hearts are full of praise and are singing. It's a picture of people who've been affected by the word of God. It's more than just... Knowing it, they've taken it in, they've been affected by it. As one commentator put it, Paul's talking about a deep and penetrating contemplation that enables the Bible's message to have a transforming power in our lives. And Psalm 1's metaphors convey all this. Okay? Meditation is likened to a tree, tree roots taking in water. Now that means not merely knowing a truth, but taking it inside and making it part of yourself to produce new growth, right? The tree is not just a channel for the water, that it moves the water from one place to another. It takes the water in, makes the water part of itself, and uses that water to produce new growth. Meditation is spiritually tasting the scriptures, delighting in it, sensing the sweetness of the teaching, feeling the conviction of what it tells us about ourselves, and thanking God and praising God for what it shows us about Him. Meditation, though, is also digesting the Scripture. Spurgeon said that earlier. It's applying it. It's thinking out how it affects you, how it describes you, how it guides you in the most practical way. It's drawing strength from Scripture, letting it give you hope, using it to remember how loved you are. To use one author's different image... Meditation is taking the truth down into our hearts until it catches fire there and begins to melt and shape our reactions to God, ourselves, and the world. Now as we move towards the close of the message and approaching the Lord's table tonight, we're going to spend some time in communion that's been really enjoyable on Wednesday nights. I want to take this idea of meditating on the word a little farther to where I believe it ultimately should lead us. 
Psalm 1 tells, the God, tells us that the godly man or woman meditates on the law of the Lord. And we said, we noted earlier that this phrase refers to the entire scripture, uh, particularly with a view to its normative character, its presence in our lives. It's our infallible rule of faith and practice. That's what our church doctrinal statement says about the scripture. Many other churches say the same thing and make that clear. It shows us the will of God for our lives. And when we consider that, truthfully, it raises an important issue, an important question. How can anyone who truly meditates on the will of God in his word find it delightful? That may seem like an odd question at first, but let me explain what I mean. Look at Jesus' meditations. Let's consider these on the Ten Commandments on the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus thinks through the meaning of, Thou shalt not commit adultery, and concludes that merely lusting after someone other than your spouse is a sin. In Matthew 5, 27, you've heard it said to those of old, You shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. That's Jesus' conclusion when he meditates on the law that was given. He meditates on the commandment also, thou shalt not kill. And he draws out the implication that we cannot even be resentful of our neighbor. You've heard it said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. But whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. That's intense. You know? How can anyone truly think intensely about the law of the Lord and not fall into despair at how woefully short we fall of its standards when you consider it? The answer is to look at the central figure of the entire written word, the one the Gospel of John calls the Word made flesh, Jesus Christ, the ultimate expression and communication of God. And this will lead us to look at how Jesus himself regarded the Scripture. Jesus was the great meditator. He is the one who delights in doing God's will. Hebrews 7 quotes Psalm 48, as the words of Jesus, when it says, I delight to do your will, O God, and your law is within my heart. Jesus is the one who prays day and night. We see that in scriptures like Luke 5 and 6. He himself often withdrew into the wilderness and prayed. And now it came to pass in those days he went out to the mountain to pray and continued all night in prayer to God. He is the one who prays day and night. He is the one who, when he looks to God, experiences delight. When the people were baptized, it came to pass that Jesus was baptized. And while he prayed, the heaven was open and the Holy Spirit descended in bodily form like a dove upon him. And a voice came from heaven which said, you are my beloved son and you I am well pleased. Jesus is the one who meditated so profoundly on scripture that he virtually bled scripture, quoting it instinctively in the most extreme moments of his life. He combated each of the assaults of Satan in Matthew 4 with, It is written. He quotes Psalm 22, verse 1, even as he dies. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That is how he stood firm 
That was how Jesus was truly a tree that was evergreen, using the word of God even when enduring the infinite agony of the cross. Do you want to be able, do I want to be able to endure the greatest pain? Then we need to put our roots into the scripture the way Jesus did. Yet Jesus is not just, he's not simply a good example. Okay, If that was all he were to us, his life would crush us with guilt because he's not an example that we can live up to. No one could meditate on the scripture he does. But he is, thank God, infinitely more than that. He's more than just an exemplar within Scripture. He is the one to whom all Scripture points. Because the main message of the Bible is salvation by grace through Jesus. The Bible is all about him. Moses wrote about him. And Abraham rejoiced to see his day. The written word and its law can be a delight for you and for me. Because the incarnate word came and died for us secured pardon for our sins and our shortcomings before God's law. You can't delight in the law of the Lord without understanding Jesus' whole mission. Because without him, the law of the Lord is nothing but a curse and a condemnation and a witness against us. Paul writes in Galatians 3, For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. For it's written, cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. But that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident, for the just shall live by faith. Jesus obeyed the law fully for us. And so now it's a delight to us, not an everlasting despair. Jesus is supremely the one also on whom we meditate because he is the meditation of God. He is God's truth become real, made concrete and applied. He is the one who enables us to stand in the judgment day. He is the one who gives us the fruit of the Spirit. We, bu- we, need to, we must both meditate on him and with him, and then not only will Psalm 1 come to life in new ways for us, but we will become unshakable trees as he was. If we don't meditate on the righteousness we have in Christ through his sacrificial death, if we don't take it in and make it part of us, then we'll always attempt to steal love and self-acceptance from worldly achievements and beauty and status. We will look for it elsewhere if we do not meditate on what we've been given through him. Meditate on Jesus. Look at him loving you. Look at him dying for you. Look at him rejoicing in you. And look at him, as Zephaniah says, singing over you. The Lord God in your midst, the mighty one will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love, and he will rejoice over you with singing. Look at all that, and he will be a delight to you, and you will be like a tree planted by streams of water. You'll bear your fruit in season, and no matter what happens, your leaf will not wither. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you tonight for the beautiful words not only um, of Psalm 1, God, but all 
all of your word. Lord, the mere fact that we are able to root ourselves in you, God, that the roots of our lives can push down with true depth into your word, God, to bring us stability in hard times, Lord, to to make us unshakable when the world throws all that it has against us. God, to enable us to bear fruit. Your word says that we were saved by you to do the works that you have set before us, Lord. Your desire for us is to be fruit, to abide in your son and to bear fruit, Lord. God, and you, you have blessed us. You've blessed us immensely, firstly and most in Christ, but God, in so many ways, we thank you for your love, for your blessing. Lord, may we all look at your word with hearts of wonder. God, may we look at it as a delight. Lord, may your spirit help us to grow, to delight more and more in your word, to delight more and more in Jesus. God, to take your word into our lives in a way that changes us each time that we open it. Be with us now as we continue to worship, Lord, and as we come to your table together to remember you, Jesus. We pray as your people. Amen. As we enter into the time of communion tonight, this time of remembrance together, I want us to take some time to remember and meditate on some of the passages in Scripture surrounding the Lord's table. So we're going to put the questions, some of the questions for meditation back up on the screen again. As I read through the Scriptures, the read through the passages tonight, I'd like us to take time to honestly reflect on the passages before coming to the table for the elements. And think of these questions as we go through. Am I living in light of this? What difference does this make? If I believe this, and how would it change things? And when I forget it, how does it affect me and my relationships? And we're going to read through the passages and take time to meditate on that. You can come for the elements whenever you like, but please don't miss the opportunity that you have tonight to be alone with Jesus. Even if you're here you know, with your spouse or with someone, just to be alone with Jesus tonight. I'm going to read two different passages. And then we'll take some time to meditate on those. And at the end, I'll guide us together through receiving the sacrament. Okay? So I'm going to start reading in 1 Corinthians 11 tonight. And then after that, the worship uh, man will play through a song. You can come and take and get the elements if you like. However you're led. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, 26 through 29. Paul, in writing to Corinthians, says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. If you're a believer who's put your faith in Jesus Christ, his righteousness given to you has made you worthy to come to his table. 
But if there's any issue that you sense is hindering your relationship with him tonight, I would invite you first to come to the altar or remain in your seat and confess that to God just to make your heart ready to receive the elements of communion tonight. So let's take some time to do that.